have tuned into RDHM Finance podcast where we talk about finance, business and life in general. Our aim is to provide you with the right knowledge, the right mindset and the right path in order to achieve financial freedom and make your lives a tad bit easier. Hi guys, this is the 7th episode and I know you guys are all as excited as I am. So let's start off this episode with a positive quote by Seneca. It is not the man who has too little but the man who craves more that is poor so welcome guys our guest for today will be talking about personal finance how you should be investing your money how you should be planning for your retirement how to manage credit cards how inflation affects your savings what type of insurance you should have whether you should mix insurance and investment and much more so please welcome jeremy snyder from california So hi Jeremy welcome to RDHM Finance podcast it is really amazing to have you on the podcast and it's really humble of you to be present and give your valuable insights about personal finance so can you please introduce yourself to the audience Sure thanks for having me and I don't think it's all that humble I am honored that you asked me to be on your show um yeah my name is Jeremy Schneider um I'm the founder of something called Personal Finance Club my quick story is when I was 21 I started an internet company as I was graduating college I worked on it for about 12 years and grew it um until I was 34 at which time I sold it for just over 5 million dollars. Um I worked for the company that bought my company for two more years and then I quit that job and kind of retired early. Um retired I put in quotes cuz I still work. I just don't need a day job anymore. Um and then after kind of taking a year or so off, I started Personal Finance Club where I help people learn about personal finance and investing which is my passion and something that's personally important to me because I want to you know use my money wisely and not go broke wow man that's that's a really inspiring stories for, for all the individuals who are the followers of fire movement like everyone's trying to get there and you already have done that so i think that's a really inspirational story that we're going to hear today so You chose to be an entrepreneur after finishing your master's in computer science. So, what made you take that bold step to turn down a job with Microsoft and go with a business? That's a good question. And pragmatically, it was just that I didn't really like working for corporate America. I had done two internships for Microsoft as a software engineer intern, and it's a great company. They have great benefits. I don't blame them, but it just wasn't to my taste, I guess. And I think. all other things equal i probably would have left my college town and gone abroad or worked for the peace corps or something like that but i was dating a girl who was still in college for another year and so i had to kind of stay in my college town and so i didn't want a real job i didn't want to leave town and so i decided to start a company and it was partially you know you said bold but i think it was partially just pragmatic based on what my options were and kind of uh naive based on how hard it is to start a company I just kind of went in blind um but yeah that's why I decided to make that choice yeah but definitely that turned out to be a like a good thing for you I think so I had a lot of fun running my own company for the last uh 14 years or whatever and I actually had an exit which is something that I had kind of dreamed of and planned on and so um 
Yeah. So at what age did you start your company Rentlings and how was the entire journey of the company? So I started when I was 21. I think I'd almost turned 22. Um, and the entire journey of the comp- company, that's uh, 12 years of my life or so. Um, it started off very um, like haphazard. I didn't know what I was doing. I literally was Googling how to start company. I didn't know what forms to fill out. I, you know, I didn't know if you just declared that you're starting a company, like how, what do you do if people give you money, like accounting, all this stuff. Um, but basically, I just started figuring things out one thing at a time and one week at a time and one month at a time and just kept marching forward and started, eventually got a client, eventually got a couple clients, um, kind of designed a product over the course of a few years, like honed it in. And then after, you know, it took about five or six years to kind of really have a functioning product and business that was kind of smoothly, somewhat smoothly running. Um, but yeah, I got there and then we just started growing it and eventually caught the eye of a, a bigger company who wanted to buy us. Yeah, that's a, that's a dream for many people to start out a company. And if you get like a buyout, then I think that's something that many people aspire. Like people start their company sometimes with the aim that maybe Google acquires it, maybe Apple acquires it just because they want to be acquired and then they want to be financially free. So most people, some people have that objective as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I won't say that that never occurred to me because for sure that's kind of like, you know, you fantasize about winning the lottery or getting your company acquired or whatever. But at the end of the day, like, I think it's important if you're building a company to build a company that has a good product and that makes money and is profitable. I think a lot of young entrepreneurs in the startup world are kind of taken by this idea of like getting a bunch of funding, getting a bunch of users, and then like getting acquired. And I think that sometimes happens, but I think more commonly companies that make money and are profitable are the ones that are acquired like much more often, like a thousand times more often. And so, you know, I always said plan A is just to make money the old fashioned way, sell something, spend less than we make, be profitable, grow that way. And then if someone comes along and buys us for a a very good price then great that's very true like last night i was talking to one of my friends so he's actually in us as well so he told me that uh, at the age of 16 like he is hard of hearing and he also has a speech defect so he talks very slowly so he went out to the doctors and he then found out that the speech therapy sessions were so costly so at the age of 16 he started his own company uh, a startup and then he made an app for that speech therapy and it, he sold it for millions at the age of 17 so it was really inspiring as in this guy he used his weaknesses to convert it into an opportunity and made a business out of it and sold it and right now he's financially free wow Today, even the young kids out there are trying to build something and get financially free even earlier. That's awesome. I mean, he uh, he beat me to the punch and I did it pretty young. Yeah, exactly. Now, a lot of people don't start a business because they lack the money and they end up trading time for money. So what is your take on it? Uh, I mean, I think that's a legitimate thing. I think, you know, you asked something about how was I so bold or brave to turn down a job with Microsoft. And you ask again about, you know, people who need the money. And that's a real thing. You know, there's something to be said for the privilege of being able to start a company. So your friend who just started that company and sold it for a lot of money, I suspect he wasn't like living on the streets before that happened. I suspect he had 
access to food and didn't have to work every day just to to feed himself. And I'm not sure about that. Um, but you know, no, no, you're right. You're right. Okay. And so that was true for me too. You know, I went to a good college and I had parents who like helped me or, you know, paid for my college tuition. Um, and so, and I, I could get a credit card and things like that. And so I, I had the opportunity, you know, I had the privilege to be able to start a company without having to like feed two kids at home and, you know, go to work just to like, like get my next meal. And so, um, you know, so it is, it is a privilege. And I do think that people who want to start a company, but aren't there yet can do it, but it might just be harder if you don't automatically have that like freedom to, you know, financially and time freedom to start a company without those other factors. Right, exactly. I think money definitely plays a big role. Like majority of the times, if there is no food on the table, then people don't even think about starting a business. They are like, First of all, let's get the normal things, the food, the house get sorted, and then we can think about building businesses. Right, exactly. Yeah. So what are the major learnings while you are running Rentlings? And what skills would you say are a must have for an entrepreneur? It's another another big question. We're going to be here all day. But uh, I'd say the thing, you know, when someone asks me that question, it's so hard to give like a very specific concrete answer. And so I'll give the things I think are really actually important to really growing a business. And there are two things. Number one is persistence. It's not stopping. A company never goes out of business until you just decide that it does and stop working on it. Um, and so, and being an entrepreneur and starting a company is very hard because you're constantly hitting roadblocks and things seem to be going wrong. And you lose sales and you're not making enough money and no one's buying a thing or the product's bad or a competitor enters or, you know, stuff is always going wrong. And so if you aren't persistent, you just go out of business. So that's like a requirement. And number two is continuous improvement. So when you combine these two things, you eventually have like a guaranteed eventual success. And so continuous improvement is every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year, you're making your business better, you're making yourself better, you're learning a new thing, you're reading another book, you're improving the product, you're improving the marketing, you're getting better at sales, getting better at hiring. You know, if you're constantly improving and you never give up, eventually you kind of paint yourself into a corner where the only thing left is success, you know, and it, it will eventually take the form of luck you know, just like when I was lucky enough to have a company buy my company, like that company didn't have to be there. But, you know, eventually something good would have happened like that because I was doing those two things. I was never giving up. I kept improving. And so maybe it was a company that buys me or maybe we become much more profitable or who knows what it is. But yeah, it's those two, two things. And if you don't do those, you know, the company is probably going to peter out of existence. And you do eventually, it's probably going to take a decade, um, but it will work. I totally agree. Like I say a thing to every one of my friends is that the best way to improve yourself or your business is to be in a feedback loop. As in every time, if there is a customer complaining, consider it as a gift because he's telling you what all things are not going right. You can then take all those feedbacks and then consider improving on all those aspects. It can be the reach that, okay, I don't get to hear about your product. This new product came out or it can be about the finances that it's too costly. So all those things need to be kept in mind and those feedbacks can actually help you to improve your business as well. Yeah, I agree. I like when I always said that if a, if a customer is complaining, there's probably a hundred other customers who just silently went away. And so, you know, when you, when you hear the feedback, that's really good because you want to really capture those other hundred customers who didn't, 
even take the time to complain, you know, because that was a, that was a real missed opportunity. Exactly. Because we see out there that even if you see products that are listed on Amazon or something, you have seen, you might have seen that there are 100 reviews on a product, but the actual number of buyers of that product is too many. So only a few people go out there, give reviews or something. It's not like if 1 lakh people are purchasing, then everyone is giving a review. So those who are giving a review, it should be very valuable for the entrepreneur to take into consideration. I agree. Yeah. Now, what is the story behind Personal Finance Club and how did sharing personal finance knowledge became a passion for you? Yeah, well, I sold my company and then for a year, I basically didn't do a whole lot of anything. I traveled and played a video game and wasted a bunch of time. And then um, one day, I was uh, my girlfriend at the time asked me, um, basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? And um, personal finance and investing has always been like, big passion of mine. I just love talking about it. I love helping people with it. I think if I can spend 10 or 20 or 30 minutes with someone and make them a millionaire over the course of their career, that's like really excites me. And I think it's good for the world. And so, um, I said to her, I would want to like teach personal finance on a large scale, like whether it's a Netflix show or a podcast or whatever. Um, and you know, we kind of talked and we're like, that's not that crazy. You know, I have a pretty good skill set. I have this knowledge on how to start businesses. Um, and so I basically then started Personal Finance Club with th this like goal of bringing personal finance and investing knowledge to everyone um, and furthering that cause. Um, and yeah, it kind of started with uh, Instagram where I do most of, most of my action right now because I think that's where most young people are spending their time. Right, right. And you're doing a pretty well job. I have to say that like I've seen your posts, they're very informational and you tend to make becoming a millionaire sound very easy. I know it's not, but you really tend to make it simple. And like every person out there who will come to your post or the feed, he gets an idea of what you need to actually do, what actions need to be taken. So I think it's not that difficult. It's just that you need to know how the steps are to be taken. Yeah, I agree. And thank you. And it's one of those things, you know, you said it's not easy. And I agree it's not easy, but it is pretty simple. Um, you know, you have to spend less than you make and invest the difference. And it's kind of like fitness, you know, people who are trying to lose weight or get in shape. It's not easy for sure. It's very hard, but it's pretty simple. It's like if you run and lift weights every day and eat vegetables and, you know, very healthy food, you will, it will be in shape. It doesn't mean everyone can do it because people have real problems in their life or they lack motivation or they have you know a million different things that could be going wrong but same with building wealth it's pretty simple when you get down to the core of it which is what i try to like demonstrate through my you know my my content yeah i think the all those people who can just understand two concepts first of all is regular investing and second of all is compounding effect so i think one who can understand these two things he will be able to know the importance of compounding like with time and regular investing your whole capital the corpus can be increased to a much higher amount and people usually don't do that so just these two things combined can help you i agree the the miracle of compound interest and uh i think that a lot of a lot of you know normal people who haven't learned this stuff think about saving as just putting money under their mattress and then spending it later but if you think about investing and letting that grow and snowball and snowball then you get to this place of never needing to work anymore because the, the wealth has grown so big that's kicking off enough growth and interest to live without working. 
Exactly. So what is your take on living below your means? And do you think it has helped you personally where you are in your life today? So yeah, my, you know, my whole thing, I've got two rules of personal finance club to build wealth. Rule number one is live below your means. And rule number two, spoiler alert, is invest early and often. And so living below your means is critically important. If you don't spend less than you make, you're broke, no matter how much you make. If you, if you make a million dollars a year and you spend a million dollars a year, you're a broke person. You know, that's, that's it. One minus one always equals zero. And so, um, and that's, that's true for me too. And so before I sold my company, and so are most of your listeners in India, do you think? Um, it's uh, around 60% are in India and rest like 25% in US, some are in England. So yeah. Okay. So if I quote dollar amounts in the US, I apologize. Do you, I mean, do, do you guys no, generally no, that's know? Fine. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We know about it. Okay. So yeah. So when I was um, working, I was making about 30, or I was paying myself $36,000 a year, which, and I was living in Southern California, which is like one of the more expensive places in the US. And so for by US Southern California standards, it was like very low. It's like a little bit above what we like declared it was a poverty line. Um, but I basically was just still deciding to spend less than that. So I, instead of like getting a fancy car or getting a big apartment, I had a roommate and I drove a very old car and I walked to work. So I didn't have to pay for gas. And I, you know, got groceries from the grocery store instead of eating out. Um, and it wasn't anything crazy. Like if people came over to my house, they thought the house was fine. And if people saw, you know, saw me out, I didn't look like a homeless person or anything. I just wasn't burning money in the way a lot of other people do. Um, and then that continues until today where I now have a lot of money and not so much money that I could spend indiscriminately. Like I could definitely burn all my money in a few years if I wanted, but I, want to be a good steward of this money and have it last my whole life and be able to be extraordinarily generous and charitable and philanthropic in my life. And so I still spend very little and I help the rest of that money grow and give away. So it's, it's critically important to be, be frugal. Yeah. And you make it sound like it's easy, but the thing is that you personally have the ability of a very high willpower. Like people, when they see they have money put in their bank account and then they get like they go to a mall and then they see an expensive dress or an expensive piece of sneaker or something, then they will just want to spend that money and buy. It's your willpower that made you stay below your means. I think that's a very big role. Willpower has a very big role to play on controlling your urges as well. So I think that's where you had a very big advantage. Like your mental state was as in that I don't care about what the society is saying. I am doing something which I am comfortable with. So that's a really good thing. Like, I think it's the willpower that made you do that. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you in that. I, I kind of meet two types of people in this world who like need help with personal finance. One type of person is very frugal, spends very little and just doesn't really get investing in how it works. And that's like a very easy thing for me to help with. I was like, oh, it's easy. Just go to these websites, click these buttons, you're investing, it's, it's done. But then there's another kind of person who's just a spender and they just want to spend if there's like, like you said, if there's a dollar in their account, they want to go spend it somewhere. And I find that's like a very hard thing to change. You know, it's not just like a little bit of learning about clicking buttons on a website. It's like, it seems to be, have a lot to do with how you were raised and what you learned when you like how your parents behaved. And so, you know, I don't know how to fix that necessarily, but I think education is always the answer. And so if you understand how important it is to take you know, pay yourself first, as I say, of your income, take a chunk off and automatically put it in another place. I'm a big fan of that because 
it kind of forces frugality. If you're someone who just spends every money, every dollar that's in your account, get it out of your account, go put it in places that you can't really get to it immediately. So it's automatically investing. And then if you've done that well, then you can kind of give your permission, give yourself permission to spend what's left. Exactly, exactly. Because I, I have heard about Dave Ramsey's uh, episode in that uh, there was actually a politics person. So he was in Congress and just to have a lifestyle of a politics person. So he spent like a million dollars and his income was around uh, two lakh dollars. So that is what happens. Like sometimes people don't even recognize and just to like make a very high lifestyle, they keep on spending. And the thing is that then they don't think about living below their means. So in that case, I think it's the mentality that people need to catch that it is okay to live below your means. No one's judging you. When was the last time that you thought about what color shirt was my neighbor wearing? No one thinks about that, right? You are actually the center of your own universe. It's only you who thinks about yourself. So you should actually be focusing on your mental state instead of focusing on what the society is going to think about you. I totally agree. That's very wise words. Yeah. Now, what is the importance of planning retirement from an early stage? And what is the feeling when you accomplish early retirement? Well, you kind of touched on that before, which is this idea of compound growth, where sometimes I'll get a question from someone who's 60 years old, and they say, I'm 60, I have $5,000 in debt, I have $500 in the bank, I want to retire in three years, what do I do? And my answer is, I, ha- I have no idea. Like you, it's, You've kind of fucked yourself at this point. Can I swear on this podcast? You can you can bleep that. Um, and I don't mean to be mean, I don't mean to be mean to that person. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, and I don't mean to be mean to that person because I, I feel for them. I feel terrible because you know they're not going to be able to retire in three years. There's no magic money that's going to fall from the sky. You know, in the, in the U.S., we have Social Security, which is like a kind of a small amount of money given to old people, but even that is not enough to sustain living for almost anybody. And so, you know, when you ask what's the importance of planning early is that you don't want to be there because two things are happening. One, that person is very sad right now. That person's very sad and it's going to get worse as they get older and they can't retire. And the other thing is I can almost guarantee you that same person, the last 40 years from 20 to 60 was also stressed about money because they're broke and they've been broke for 40 years. And so when you plan early and often, it's not just about some pipe dream of being 80 years old and sitting on a throne of gold coins or something. It's literally to make yourself happier today also and happier later. And so when you are 25 or 30 and you're taking 500 bucks a month or 20% of your income or whatever it is and automatically putting it away, investing it early and often, you're letting that money compound and grow and grow and grow. So you have a massive amount of money later and you feel better today because you know you're not fucking yourself down the road. You know, if you spend every dollar you make and you're in debt and you're paying credit card bills and you're just in this like paycheck to paycheck churn cycle because you're spending like you're spending more than you have it's like never a fun existence and so when you do that planning you are happier for your whole life exactly it gives you an ability to pursue things that you really that really makes you happy like teaching uh guitar lessons to like small kids if that makes you happy you can literally do it and you don't need to even charge for it like you can go and do charitable things by giving just giving your knowledge you don't need to spend any money but you can give your knowledge to the people and you can do charities in that form but 
if you're not having that amount of money with yourself that you can't sustain your living, then in that case, you can't just go and work somewhere and not earn even a single penny. So I think that is the level of importance financial uh, independence gives. Like once you have achieved it, then you have the ability to pursue something which makes you even more happier. I agree that uh, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, that's the dream. I think it's for me, not for you. <laughs> You've already done that. <laughs> well, I, mean, I guess that's true. I mean, it's it's nice, but you know, at the end of the day, like it's money never really brings happiness. You know, even you know when I saw a bunch of zeros in my bank account or whatever, when it, like I got all this money, I wasn't instantly happy. It's like my friends were my fr same friends, my family was my same family. Like you know, so I think a lot of people chase money like it's this happy gold pot at the end of the rainbow and they think when they get there they're going to find it but it's it's not there so you always have to be happy in the day and and money is just this thing that can like make your life much worse if you don't have any of it um, because you can't afford to eat but if you're comfortable and then you can like work on those hobbies like you mentioned and instill friendships and, and grow relationships that's where true happiness comes from i think Exactly. I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree. Even the Harvard study told, tells that the reason, the main reason why people are happy is ha happy is just the relations that exist with friends, family and others. Like it's not the money, it's the relations. All those people, after, it was actually a lengthy study, I think about 50 years. And in that study, they found out that only those people across those years who had more relations with people who spent more time with the family and friends they were actually more happier than the people who had earned more money i believe it i think yeah i think a lot of studies show the same thing yeah now what factors play a role in deciding how much money will a person require when he retires so how much a person requires is just how much they spend you know how much money they need to cover their living expenses and so i think and that generally doesn't change a dramatic much if anything maybe goes up a little bit when they retire because you're not you're not at work every day and so you could be out spending money instead of not spending money at work um, and so I, I think that kind of just goes right back to frugality which is you know whatever you whatever your lifestyle is your cost of living now your habits your spending habits are probably going to continue into retirement and maybe they'll even increase a little bit. And so, um, I, you know, I think a lot of people think, okay, well, once I retire, I'm going to just live a very simple life and, you know, just, I don't know, pet my cat all day or something, but like, you know, that's not true. You're going to want to, you're going to want to go out to nice dinners because you're old and that's what old people do. You're going to want to travel because that's what people like to do. You're going to want to uh, drive a nice car. Like it's just, it's going to get worse. And so, you know, the point is you it's going to be similar to your lifestyle now and probably go up a little bit. Exactly. So you can just find out what are the average expenses that you usually have and according to that you can set an amount that this much amount i can use for retirement yeah totally so yeah if you're talking about how much money do you uh like need to retire not like a per year but a total amount um, there's this thing called the safe withdrawal rate which is you take how much money you spend in a year so let's say you spend forty thousand dollars a year which in the u.s is you know kind of a reasonable medium amount to spend and then you multiply it by 25 and so you take 40,000 multiplied by 25 you get a million and so a million bucks is basically what you need to retire and have that $40,000 per year indefinitely because you can take $40,000 a year off the top 
And then with the volatility of investing and inflation over time, you will never kind of eat away your whole nest egg. It'll keep growing fast enough such that you don't whittle it away to nothing. Yes. And like you just talked about the inflation thing. So you do agree that inflation plays a critical role in planning for your retirement corpus? Um, I think, you know, it it's baked into that safe withdrawal rate. And so I think this is like kind of a big difference between the US and India right now, which is in the US, there has been very little inflation in the last 20 years, even like inflation's been like one or 2%. I think in India, it's much higher. Do you know what it is in India? Yeah, around five or 6%, I guess. Right. And so that's, that's a dramatic difference. Like they both sound like small numbers, but like one or 2% prices are only doubling every 30 or 40 years. We're at 5%, they're doubling every, you know, 10 years or something like that, or 12 years. And so that's a big difference where, it, you know, a car is going to cost twice as much in 10 years. And so, and I, and I think it comes down to the currency, right? So you guys just have a different currency. And so, um, but you guys have different banking and investment options as well. And so if you're investing in US securities, like US stocks, then that's going to be, that's going to uh, bake or, you know, help your growth. And if you're putting cash in a Indian bank account, I think they pay, pay higher interest rates right now. Yeah, the, the interest rate on Indian bank accounts is somewhere close to 7% for senior citizens and somewhere close to 6% for like below the 60 years of age. Right. Um, yeah, which is because in the US, <laughs> like the interest rates are like less than 1%. They're like 0.5% or 0.1%. It's like crazy low. And so if, there, if there's an account in the US that would pay, you know, in US dollars, that would pay that kind of interest, people would lose their mind. But they don't realize that because inflation is so low, you know, it's kind of the same thing, like putting money in an Indian bank account is just keeping up with inflation. And so basically, that's not good enough. You can't just keep up with inflation. You also have to have that money grow, um, which is why you why you should invest. Exactly. And if you just notice the index of India, the, it's the top 30 companies are called Sensex. So it increases like on an average CAGR, it, it has given 13% return. So like, even if there is an inf high inflation, there is also a high uh, growth in the stock market as well. So I think that is how people approach to growing their investments here. Definitely. And so, yeah, when you when you talk about that 13% growth, you kind of have to subtract the 5% of inflation, which gives you about 8% growth, which is great. You know, 8% is a very good number after inflation and will like allow you to retire if you invest over many years at that rate. Exactly. So from when have you been investing in index funds? And can you explain the audience what exactly an index fund means? So I started investing when I was, I think, 15, when my dad basically introduced it to me. So I was very fortunate and privileged and lucky to have a family that kind of exposed me to this stuff. Um, back then, index funds were in their infancy. <laughs> you know, they, were, they weren't really a big thing. I, you didn't even, I think people didn't even really know about them. I think, I think the first one started like in the late 70s or something, but they, they basically became more popular in the last 10 years since like, you know, in the, you know, in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, and so I was investing in mutual funds, which is very similar. In fact, an index fund is just a type of mutual fund. A mutual fund is where a bunch of people mutually put money into a, an account, like a fund, mutual fund. And then that account is invested on behalf of all of the individual investors. And so, you know, if you go back you know, 100 years ago or something to like very early times in the stock market, you'd have to go buy shares of a company and you get pieces of paper that were like the stock certificates. And then you could like 
trade those pieces of paper with other stock owners. And that's like very time consuming and confusing and expensive. Um, and then, so they invented this concept of the mutual fund where you just give your money to a dude and then he does all that trading for you with the stock certificates. And then you can go back to him later and basically see how much money your share is worth now, um, which was a, an improvement, which was way better. Um, but, and, and that exists to, to this day, mutual funds still exist. The problem with that model is that these dudes who are doing all this complex trading for you charge a high fee. You know, the average mutual fund is around 1% per year, um, but which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you, you know, if you look at the growth, like let's say you have that 13% growth minus the 5% inflation, now you're down to 8%. If you take away another 1%, now you're at 7%. That actually, the difference between 7% and 8% growth over the course of a 40-year career can almost double the difference. It's crazy, but that's just the power of compound growth. And so if you're basically paying this dude all this money over all these years to trade stocks for you, at the end of your career, because of the money he was basically shaving off the top every year, you could have half as much as you would have had otherwise if you like weren't paying that fee. So enter the almighty index fund. Um, and it just turns out, by the way, that these mutual fund managers who are probably very smart, many of them very nice people, since they're all competing with each other, they basically all average out to the stock market. And study after study after study shows that you can't just go get a good mutual fund manager like you just don't know. No one knows because going forward, they all basically perform randomly. And after you take out their fees, it's worse than random. It's worse than just average, right? So what an index fund does is instead of picking and choosing stocks and paying a smart manager for that, you buy all the stocks. It's the same concept where everyone puts their money into one specific account. But then instead of a smart person charging a high fee to pick and choose stocks, a computer basically automatically buys every stock for you. And then you guarantee yourself your fair share of all market growth. And so if you're like in the Indian market or the global market or the US market or whatever market you're in, all those companies that are profiting and growing and innovating and hiring and increasing revenues and et cetera, et cetera, all the growth that's plowed back into all those stocks, which is all plowed into the index fund, which comes directly to you at minimal cost. So you basically get that full 8% instead of the 7%. And then you can you know, have twice as much money 40 years later. Right. You're absolutely right with this. Because uh, even in India, like, first of all, there are two options to buy a mutual fund. There's a direct plan and then there's an indirect plan. So with a, if you go for a direct plan, then you're paying less fees. And if you go for a indirect plan, you're going through a broker, then first of all, you're paying around 1% to the broker. So there is where your returns fall. And then after that, there is always a fund manager sitting out there. So fund manager is going to charge an expense. So that comes to the expense ratio of the fund. So 1% again goes over there. So 2% will matter a lot. Like Earlier, I've seen people that people were using indirect uh, uh, method for investing in mutual funds. And that way, they were actually losing 2% of their money. So I just calculated that, okay, how much of a difference is uh, 2% going to create at the like 25 or 30 years? So I was bogged down by the fact that it was in millions. Like if you really calculate the gist of it, then it was really a huge chunk of amount that you lose out just with 2%. So yeah, it does, it does matter. The expense ratio does matter. Yeah, the the fees are just the silent killer of your investment. And and the interesting thing about the fees is I think human nature is to think that you can beat the market. That if you pick good stocks or you spend a lot of effort trading or you do a lot of research, 
But study after study after study after study show that's just not true. That, you know, because the market is so efficient, because all these things are constantly being traded in real time, all the stocks are being traded in real time, that the sum total of all human knowledge is constantly being priced into every single stock. So basically, every single stock already has everything you know and everything you don't know priced into it. And so, since you can't beat the market by being smart, the only thing you can do to proactively improve the future performance of your investments is to minimize the fees. It's not more research. It's not find a better manager. It's not pick a five-star fund. It's not uh, read the right book. None of that stuff has any sort of correlation to future performance. The only, the only thing that correlates to future performance is minimizing fees. Exactly. Like I was talking to a Netherlands-based investor. So he's actually uh, Alex Wickner. So he does ETFs, REITs, cryptocurrencies. He invests in all these kind of investments. And he told that only 8% of the fund managers are able to beat the market. So if you are investing in a mutual fund, there is a 92% chance that you will actually end up with a low return than the index fund. And, and the thing is about that 8%, you don't know which 8% that is ahead of time because it's much more likely to be random than it is to be like the 8% are smart guys. Like one of the studies I like looked at in, in, in any given year over a one year time frame, 30% of the mutual fund managers will beat the market and 70% will lose. So already you're on a, on a bad start. But then they looked at just that 30% and looked at it for another year. So you're like, okay, we'll just take the good ones and remove the bad ones. Then of that 30%, the next year, only 30% of those beat it the next year. So it's not like they're more likely to beat the market. They're just, it was just random. And so it's like every single time frame where they took only the good ones and followed them for another time frame. It's like just starting from back from zero and it's random again. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of people hear, oh, 8% beats the market. I'll just go invest with one of those 8%. But you can't because then the next, if you do, then they're going to lose the market going forward, right? So what happened looking backwards is not what's going to happen looking forwards. Exactly. Now, what are the risks that come with index funds? And can you lose all your money in it? So this is a question I get a lot from young investors because they have heard investing is risky and they don't want to lose all their money. And for sure, when you invest, you're putting your money on the line um, and you should know what you're investing in. I think education and is very important. And I think I would never recommend someone invest in something that they don't understand. I think it's better just to put it into a savings account um, while you're learning because you don't want to get burned by something that's very bad. That said, index funds have this kind of nice benefit of representing the entire market. So while there is volatility, if there's like a coronavirus, for example, that could cause the market to do crazy things like drop temporarily, but an index fund basically cannot go to zero. Because if you buy, for example, a global market index fund, what you've done is you've bought a piece of every company, like every publicly traded company on the planet, more or less. If that goes to zero, if, if your investment in that goes to zero, what that means is there are no more companies on planet Earth. It means you can't go to Google and do a search. You can't go to, you know, I feel like maybe the companies are different in India, but like in America, it'd be like car companies. Yeah, it's or, the same. Yeah, like it's the same. You can't go to Google. You can't go to Amazon to buy a product. Like, yeah, it works. It works. I understand. Right. Yeah, there's no oil companies. There's no car companies. There's no nothing. And if there's no nothing, First of all, 
you know, maybe they were not even alive, you know, maybe there's no government, maybe who knows, you know, so you should have been investing in, you know, basically shotguns and gunpowder and canned food. Um, but also what that also means is that cash is no good either. Like in that doomsday financial apocalypse scenario, it doesn't matter if you have money in a bank account because there are no companies who accept money anymore. And so, and, and what I'm, what I'm trying to get a what I'm trying to like, the point I'm trying to make is that I don't know if that will happen or not. I suspect it won't. I think humans are very, uh, you know, versatile and adaptive and we are going to like figure out all the bad things that come our way. But if it does happen, you're no worse off for having invested because anything you put your money into will have, you know, gone to zero. So, you know, like I said, the only thing that you could really hedge against losing everything in an index fund is basically like, uh, prepper stuff where you're buying you know shotguns and stuff um, but otherwise it's just gonna go with the wealth of all the companies of the planet and companies of the planet are pretty good at making money and so if you're someone who like shakes your fist at big companies and say oh they're always profiting like yeah go go get a piece of that go buy an index fund so you're profiting too exactly exactly because even if you invest in 30 companies and even if two close it does not matter because the gain from those 28 companies might be much higher Totally. And, and, that, and then one of the beautiful things about index funds is they're what's called self-cleansing. And so if you buy in the US, for example, an S&P 500 index fund, it's the 500 biggest companies in the US. And then as the 501st company starts to grow faster than the 500th company, they basically switch those out. So like I said, it's a computer that manages all that trading now, but just swaps those two out. And so a company doesn't even need to go out of business. You don't really lose all your money. You just replace it with a faster growing company. And then you always own the 500 biggest companies that are applying. And, and basically all index funds work this way. It just happens at like a much smaller scale with much smaller companies at the end of the tail. Exactly. And right, right. And that's a b much better approach to have your funds in the fastest growing company. So that's a much better approach as well. So what percentage of returns can a person expect from investing in index funds? And should he keep his money invested even if the markets are down? So historically, and again, this is like my US-based perspective, the answer is about 10% over many decades. So over any like 30 or 40 decade period, the market goes up about 10% per year. Um, and that's a before inflation number. After inflation, which in the US has historically been 2 to 3%, it's more like 7 to 8%. And the numbers you gave me earlier were the same. It's basically 8% after inflation. And that depends on the currency you're investing in and whatever. So, you know, 8%, like I use basically use 7% when I'm projecting post-inflation future growth. Um, so yeah, 7%. And should you keep investing when the markets are down? Of course you should, because everything's on sale. And so, um, you know, Warren Buffett actually made a really good point, which is if you are a net buyer of stocks, if you're someone who's buying index funds, if you're someone who's in the wealth building phase of your career, you want the price to be low. You want to pay less. It's like if you go to the store to buy beer and normally beer is $3 and now it's $2, like you're happy, not sad, right? You're like, oh, the beer in my fridge is worthless. Like, no, just go buy more beer. That's good. Uh, you know, if you start selling beer one day when you're old and you are selling index funds, then yeah, you want the price to eventually be higher. But if you ask, should you keep investing when the markets are down? Absolutely, you should keep investing. Um, but the thing is, it's very hard to, not only very hard, in my opinion, it's basically impossible to predict when the markets will be down and up. And so the only rational thing to do is just to invest 
early and often. Just at a regular interval, every two weeks, every month, whatever it is, just keep putting in. Ignore the market. doesn't matter if it's up or down. Leave it for decades and you'll be rich. Exactly. Because in the long term, the prices are always going to increase. And some people just think that just because I invested some money and the markets went down and I lost some money. So they get panicked about it because they were initial investors. They got panicked and they withdrew at a loss. So that's something that people need to know that when you are invested for a long term, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, your money is always going to increase. And you can just see the history. Like even if it drops for like two years, maybe from 2008 to 2010, then definitely with the coming back, the re, re uh, the relaunching of the economy after that in 2011, it might be 140% up. So you need to keep these factors into check. Even right now, uh, like Indian currency, uh, the Indian index funds, they have lost like around 30 to 40% when the Corona came in. But now it's gradually again increasing. Like it went down 40%. Now it's again up 20%. And I think by the passage of time, when an, a vaccine comes out or something of like that sort of thing happens. So again, the market is going to go up. So I think that's the pers persistence that people need to keep that you should keep on investing no matter the market's going down or up. Yeah. One of the great metaphors I like is that it's like yo-yoing while you go upstairs. Do you have yo-yos where you like the little toy that goes up and down? Yeah, 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 yeah. We <laughs> okay, do so that. it's like if you imagine yo-yoing as you walk upstairs, any given moment, it's going to feel like this very volatile thing up and down. And you're like, oh, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down, I'm up. But you're walking upstairs. And so if you look at the longer time frame, you're going to be yo-yoing. And so it, like just locally, it feels like a lot of up and down. But over the course of a few of flights of stairs, you're like, 50 feet higher than where you started like the little yo-yoing doesn't even matter anymore and so don't worry about just what the market's doing today or this week or this month or this year think about what's going to be doing in 10 years when you're up that flight of stairs that's a very great way to put it like i really like the way you explained the yo-yoing thing <laughs> so i got i got instagram posts on all, all my simple metaphors yeah now, a lot of people fall into the credit card trap that is living off their credit card every month and having no money in their bank account because it goes eventually to the towards the repayment of credit card bills. So what is your advice for them and how can they get rid of the credit card cycle? Yeah, I think I think more generally, a lot of people think just in terms of monthly costs, you know, what is my car cost per month? What is my credit card bill cost per month? What is my apartment cost per, per month? And then they look at their income and see if I can pay all those bills, then I can afford it. And I'm making the little air quote sign with my fingers. Um, but the problem is it's a trap because what you're doing if you're just paying all the bills monthly is you're basically just you know working for the banks your whole life. You know, you're slaving away at your job just to make an income, just to pay all these bills. And so I don't like to think in terms of monthly payments. I like to think in terms of total amounts. So instead of knowing you know, like what I have to pay per month. I like to know what is my current net worth? How much money do I totally have? And so a net worth is what you own minus what you owe. So you add up all the money in your bank accounts, all the money in your investments, the cost of your or the value of your car, the value of your house. You subtract all the debt you have, all the loans on those cars and those houses, anything else. And the net value is your net worth. And so I like to think of increasing that net worth. And so if you're someone who's in this credit card trap, your net worth might be negative. So you might have a negative $10,000 net worth or something. And so the first thing you need to do is you need to get rid of that debt and you need to get out of that cycle. And so, you know, it, it's easy to say, and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't mean to like uh, mitigate the 
difficulties of poverty. And if you're poor and you have a very low income, like it's not as easy as just pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. But what choice do you have, right? So you have to figure it out. You have to crank down that spending. You have to crank up the income, work a side job, build, grow the career, um, you know, just hustle more, whatever it is, and get out of that trap. Because until you're out of that trap, it's just gonna, you're going to keep being this like washing machine of being broke. And being broke is a very expensive state of the world. You know, there's credit card overdraft fees and bank fees and and payday loans and all this shit that's really bad for poor people. And so you basically just have to like go extra hard for a relatively short period of time to get out of the cycle and then focus on those net worths, you know. So if you get a car, don't think about how much it's going to cost per month. Think about the total cost of the car. So if your if your net worth is $5,000 and the car costs $20,000, do not buy that car. Are you crazy? You're going to put your you're going to make your net worth like, you know, it's going to cut your five times more than your net worth, you know. So you should buy like a $2,000 car and then grow that net worth. So if your net worth is $200,000 and you want to buy a $20,000 car, okay. That starts to be in the ballpark of reasonable. It's not going to bankrupt you by making that one choice. Right, right. You need to know what your income is. And according to that, you need to be purchasing things. If, if you have like, that's the way even marketing works. Like people, when they're selling a real estate property, so you're not going to go and sell a $2 lakh property towards a person who's uh, living at a at an income of $20,000. You will eventually, the marketing companies will try to sell a $2 lakh house to a person who is at least earning like a $50,000 or a $60,000 income. But the thing is that, when you go out of your range, when you try to like just increase your lifestyle by a big apartment and you have a very low income, in that case, you get caught up in that debt cycle. And then you are eventually not able to manage that debt. And ultimately, the cost increases, you get into legal cases, bankruptcy and all. So that's not a good thing to happen. So I think that's you that you need to consider is that income and your expenses should be in like the thing that you said about that you should be living under that range if you have somewhere around five thousand dollars then you should not be buying a car that's more than that so it should always be in a range i agree rule number one live below your means yeah yeah i think it sums up every point like live below your means is something that every point if you come to the crux of it if you find the root cause it's live below your means yeah yeah that's true and and the other one is invest early and often which is all the, in the investing side and i like going back to those two simple rules because I think people can just naturally get caught up in all the details and they can, it can be very confusing and there's interest rates and, you know, yields and ETFs and index funds and uh, stocks and trading. And and it's like, just, it, it can overwhelm you. But if you just get back to the simplicity and say, Hey, spend less than you make and invest the difference. Do those two things, even if you don't do it perfectly, you know, even if it's not a perfect investment, even if you spend a little bit less than you make instead of a lot less than you make, you know, even if you do those two things imperfectly, you'll be in good shape. But if you spend more than you make and you never invest, doesn't matter how good you are at index funds, you're, you're broke. Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree. Now, would you recommend having a good health insurance or just investing your money instead? I think this one might be country specific because I know every country in the world has different health insurance system. In the US, uh, we have a really shitty system and people are responsible for getting their own health insurance and it's very expensive. But I would recommend getting health insurance because if you don't and the bad thing happens, like you become very sick or get injured, you know, you your finances can be ruined. I think in the US, like some 
terrifying percent of bankruptcies are actually due to medical debt. You know, people who were getting by okay, and then they went to the hospital and got a massive medical bill, and suddenly they have to declare bankruptcy. And so, you know, I always, I carry health insurance, I recommend everyone does. I think in the US, it's actually, you know, required by law now. But yeah, I would say it sucks, it's expensive, but, you know, better than the alternative. Exactly. I think you should be prepared. Like, even if you have an emergency fund, you shouldn't be having emergency fund for health, you know, health insurance, is something that, okay, let go of that small amount of money, but at least you have your life covered. You don't need to ruin all your planning, all your finances that you were planning for like 20 years or 30 years down the line, because sometimes the medical bill can be so huge that all your money that you thought I'm going to, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to invest it in here and I'm going to use it for this purpose. So all that purposes goes in vain and eventually your life, like it, gets off the track so you don't want that to happen so i think health insurance having a good health insurance is much better i agree you'll you'll be glad when you need it exactly and does owning an insurance policy that gives a lump sum money on retirement a good idea or one should use it only for a life risk cover and not mix investment and insurance um so i think this question is mostly about these specific life insurance policies that are kind of hybrid investment vehicles and carry a cash value. Um, and so first of all, you only need life insurance if someone else is depending on your income to live. And so if you are married and have two kids and your spouse doesn't work, then there's four people, including yourself, who need your money to eat. So in that case, Yes, you should definitely have life insurance because if you die, you don't want your family to become in poverty. Um, but if you are 25 years old and you are not married and you have no kids and your parents are healthy and wealthy and no one, you know, if you die, it would be a tragedy because you are very young and it'd be very sad, but no one would go hungry, then you don't need life insurance. You simply don't need life insurance because if you die, who's going to get that money? Like it, there, no one needs a windfall because a young person died. There doesn't need to be some sort of lottery payout. So the first thing is knowing if you need it at all. Um, second is that insurance salesmen uh, love to try to sell these hybrid vehicles because it turns out for, you know, relatively young people, uh, you know, I'm talking like less than 50 or maybe even less than 60 life insurance is pretty cheap because people who are less than 50 or 60 don't die that much. You know, we like any given year, you have like a 99.99% chance of surviving the year, you know, up until, until you're like later in, in life. Right. And so it turns out you can pay like 30 or 40 bucks and get like 500,000 bucks in insurance, just because when the insurance companies looks at the actuarial tables and sees how many, how many 30 year olds die, um, not many die. And so everyone can pay a small amount of money. And then the one person who unfortunately does die gets the big payout and the insurance company has a big enough um, profit to cover the difference. But insurance companies being that they're clever, profitable companies said, Hey, we don't like charging just 30 bucks a month. We want to charge like 300 bucks a month or 500 bucks per month. And so they basically invented these new products that say, Hey, you'll get instead of 30 bucks past 300 bucks, but in addition to getting paid, if you meet your unfortunate early demise, you'll also be accruing a cash value and you'll grow this money. And they, you know, the insurance salesmen like talk about all the amazing benefits, but basically I've never, ever seen one of these that doesn't suck. 
it's basically just like, I think of it like a carnival scam where you go to like a, a fair or a carnival and it's like a game and it looks like it's easy to win and you play and you realize it sucks and they always win. Like that's what these, these hybrid policies. And so basically my opinion and the opinion of people that I talk to who are smart opinion or smart, educated, altruistic financial advocates say, don't mix insurance and investment. You, you cover yourself for the insurance that you need, like health insurance and life insurance. Then with the other money, just invest it in a low-fee way because if you don't, you just get caught up in this very confusing, complex mess of fees that's going to give you a much worse financial outcome down the road. Exactly. Like what most insurance people do in India is that when they're selling an insurance policy, we call it endowment policy as well. So wherein you get a return somewhere down the line. So when you are retiring, you might get a lump sum amount. So the thing is that they come to you, they will just say, okay, so you need to invest this much amount of money and you will get this much amount of corpus. So people don't actually calculate that the amount of return that you're getting is not even like close to 2%. So the thing is that they just don't understand that whatever amount they were just spending, it's just a life cover that they're getting some amount and that life cover is then added up to the total amount that you're getting uh, once uh, once the policy finishes. So suppose there is a 30 years policy. So 30 years down the line, if you have been paying like some amount of money, so at the end, they just fool you that, okay, you are going to uh, get this much amount of money. But when you are going to tell them that, no, I don't think this is going to work out. This is very low return. So what they do is they will just increase the amount of your uh, investment like premium per month. And then they'll say, look, sir, you are just increasing your uh, premium by $200. And the amount has grown to such a huge amount in the, at the retirement. So people don't actually calculate that it's the return is very low. It's like close to two, three percent. So that's very low. It, it won't be able to beat the inflation as well. Yeah. And the reason is because that's, it's this profit that's built into their product. And so when there's an insurance salesman coming to sell you this thing, he makes a lot of money when he sells that to you because all that money that could be going into a low fee investment that's going to build wealth for you is going to his pocket instead. So you have to really think about their incentives when they're really trying to push these, uh, these investments on you. Exactly. Like I heard about these companies wherein for the first year, 30% of all your premiums go towards that broker. So just think about it. How much that broker is earning just from a one person? Like whatever is the premium, 30% goes to that broker. So that's insane. Yeah, it's really messed up. Yeah. Now reaching that milestone of a millionaire is a dream of many individuals out there. But what would you say to those individuals who are in their 20s and 30s and who give excuse that I don't have that much money to invest to be a millionaire? So I, I did this little study a while back and I went back and looked at the US stock market and the international stock, stock market performs about the same, but there's just a lot like a longer track record of the US with like more um, data. So it's kind of easier to do this kind of study on. But I looked at every single starting year in history for the last like 120 years. And no matter what year you started, if you put $250 a month away every month and you wait 40 years, at the end of that 40 years, you'll always have more than a million dollars, no matter when you started and when you finished. And the average is closer to 2 million. It was like 1.9 million. It's like in the worst in the worst year ever, like right at the end of the financial crisis, you'd have like 1.3 million. But even then, if you wait a few more years, you'd then be back up to like 3 million or something. And so I think, you know, I think a lot of people think of millionaire and they have this like idea of 
sports stars or rappers and you have to like hit it big or win the lottery. But most millionaires get there by just investing early and often over long periods of time. So just figure out if you can like lower your housing costs a little bit, if you can lower your transportation costs a little bit, um, figure out like the big pieces of your budget you can you can adjust a little bit and you'll be a millionaire. And so, you know, and I get it when you're 20s or 30s, you want to spend your money, you want to have fun. But trust me, you'll be glad when you're 50 or 60 and you've got a million bucks in the bank. Exactly, exactly. Well, that was quite amazing, uh, Jeremy. And I think uh, a lot of listeners are going to take this into consideration. So any final piece of advice that you would like to give to the listeners who are there at their home listening to this podcast and they want to start their journey towards financial independence? If you got this far, you're an hour into the into the podcast. I got I got to end with the two rules because if you forget everything we've said so far and you remember the two rules, that is what's going to make your life better. Rule number one: live below your means, spend less money than you make. And rule number two: invest early and often. If you do those two things and you forget everything else, you will be in great shape. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for being part of the podcast. I think I really enjoyed the conversation and you have really given a lot of insights about the personal finance industry, how you can get out of the debt trap, how even you can run a business, some things about the entrepreneur as well, what qualities you can have, like the persistence thing that the company keeps on going. So all those were really good insights. And I think it's going to help a lot of people, even if they're starting a business or even if they're starting a journey towards financial independence. So thank you so much for being part of this podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. It is my distinct pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And you are killing it. You know all your stuff. And I'm glad that you're you're on the side of the good guys trying to give all the good information to uh, young investors out there. Thank you. So that was Jeremy Snyder. You can get in touch with him at Personal Finance Club on Instagram and can get help for your finances. Thank you so much for tuning into RDHM Finance Podcast and making an effort to explore the realm of money making. To get the latest updates on podcast episodes, follow us at RDHM Finance on Instagram. Till then, take care and have fun practicing frugality.